continue to move in this place as we worship you, as we hear your word preach, Lord, that we would not just go through the motions of listening, but we would hear your voice, Lord, speaking to our hearts as you speak through our pastor. May your spirit move in this place, and may we be transformed by your word as we continue to worship. We love you, we thank you, and all God's people said, amen. Be seated. Well, today we're continuing through the book of, of Jonah, and next week, I know we're scheduled to, the first weekend of every month to do the Lord's Supper, and we've moved that till next weekend. We're going to finish up this series on the book of Jonah. It's going to be a really powerful time when we wrap the Lord's Supper uh, in as we finish, and we close out this series on the book of Jonah. If you've been with us, you know the story. Last week, we looked at Jonah chapter 2. We looked at the life of Jonah. We looked at the prayer uh, that Jonah had. Chapter 2 of Jonah is, is a prayer of gratitude. It's a prayer of rescue. It's a prayer of thankfulness of what God did in Jonah's life, that God rescued Jonah, that God saved Jonah, that God rescued him from the deep, and, and when he really didn't even have to. I mean, Jonah was living in disobedience. And remember, I, I told you this, there are some that will look at the book of Jonah and say, oh, when he got swallowed by the fish, that was because of punishment. That was because of judgment on his life, because he didn't follow God. No, Jonah didn't see it that way, and it wasn't that way at all. When you look at the prayer in Jonah chapter 2, the prayer of gratitude, you realize that being swallowed by the fish wasn't for punishment, wasn't for judgment. It was for quite the opposite. It was for rescue. It was to bring him back to him. And so remember, God asked Jonah to, to do something that Jonah didn't want to do. Jonah was a prophet. He was a man of God. God had called Jonah to go down to, to Nineveh. Uh, Jonah hated Nineveh. They stood for everything that the Israelites, everything that Jonah was against, and he didn't want to go. So he went to Joppa. He boarded a, a ship and got on the boat and began to sail across the water. A storm came up. They realized, the sailors realized it was because of Jonah's disobedience to God. And so they, they like pitched him overboard. Remember that whole deal? And that's the whole picture of this, that running from God is never productive. Running from God is never productive in your life. And guess what? Running from God is never productive in my life. Running from the things that God has called you to do. And so Jonah, they pitched him overboard. He's floating around in the Mediterranean Sea, and he doesn't know if he's going to live. He doesn't know what's going to happen. And then God orchestrates a fish that came and swallowed him up. And Jonah was in the fish for, for, for a few days, and and there he had some time to reflect on his life. That's something interesting about crisis. Crisis in your life, crisis in my life, will always bring us to the, to the point to reflect on our life. It, whenever you and I go through crisis, it always brings us to the point to where we reflect on our decisions, we'll reflect on the things that we're doing. Some of the most reflective times of my life, if you will, have been in the midst of crisis. We start looking back on your life and decisions that you've made and, and choices that you've made. And so Jonah is, is in the fish, and he was in the fish for a few days. He, Jonah chapter 2 is a reflective prayer, a prayer of gratitude, and then brings us to, to where we left off. Jonah chapter 2, verse 10, and then we're going to move from here all the way through, through, the chapter, through, through chapter 3. And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. So Jonah comes out of the deep. He comes from a close encounter with God and, and death. And now he's like on this, well, he's on this beach where, where Jonah learns to make fire. And he makes friends with a volleyball named Wilson. Some of you are quicker than others. 
That's a different story. <laughs> and But here's the interesting deal about that whole thing. God brought Jonah back to the point of his departure. Jonah's where he started off. Or the beach is where Jonah started off. Running from God is never productive. Just never. It's draining. It's emotionally draining. It'll wear you out. But running from God is never productive or you never make progress you deal with the same stuff over and over and over God brought Jonah back to the point of his departure look at this Jonah 113 this is how we know instead the men did their best as when they're still in the boat the storm came up instead the men did their best to row back to dry land but they could not watch this they could not, for the sea grew wilder than before. Your disobedience to God can cause great problems in your life. You'll never make progress. It's never productive. And aside from that, you bring a lot of unnecessary drama into your life. You ever notice that about crisis, especially when you're disobedient to God? You just bring all this stuff, all this drama into your life. I mean, look at Jonah's life. You know, in a boat, storm comes up, swallowed by a fish, thrown overboard, floating the Mediterranean Sea, back on the beach, all this stuff, all this drama in his life. Disobedience to God, running from God, you never make progress, and it brings a lot of stuff into your life. Jonah chapter 3, verse 1. One of my favorite verses. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. In my Bible, because of my story, because of my Jonah story, that's like highlighted, circled, asterisk, dog-eared. I mean, I hope you write in your Bibles. I mean, I write, I, I go through a bunch of Bibles because I just write so much things that God has given me. But when I look at that, I think about how God is a God of a second chance. Listen, let me tell you something. When we started this series, I told you a lot of people think that Jonah is a story about a guy that ran from, a, ran from the Lord, thrown out of a boat and swallowed by a fish and spit back up on the beach, and that's all it is. No, it's really not about Jonah. The story of Jonah is about a God who is a God of a second chance and a third chance and a fourth chance. A God who doesn't give up on us regardless of our disobedience, regardless of our choices that we make. And when I look at this and I think, if we're honest, God didn't even deserve Jonah. Jonah didn't even deserve for God to give him a second chance. There's been times in my life I didn't even deserve the second chance. I picked up playing golf in 2007 and um, really enjoyed it. And one of the things that I discovered about golf and I really liked about golf is this issue of a mulligan. And if you've never played golf, you, you don't know what a mulligan is, but a mulligan is like just a do-over. I mean, and so there would be, without any penalty, and so there would be many times or a lot of times that I'd hit off the tee box and it wouldn't go past the lady's tee or hit a house or whatever. And Dane or someone would look at me and say, hey, just take a mulligan. Just take a mulligan now. Mulligan doesn't go on the scorecard. It's just, like it, it's just like it never happened. You just tee it up and you hit again. But here's the interesting thing about golf. 
It's amazing what a second chance will do to your golf game. I mean, when you, when you just look at this, it's amazing that after you didn't hit it very far, missed it, hit a house, whatever, you get to hit it again, and all of a sudden you hit again, you hit the fairway this time. It's amazing what happens in golf, what that second chance, that mulligan, that do-over will do for you. And here's what I've learned about life. It is amazing what it will do for your life and my life, that second chance. It can turn around a golf game, and guess what? It can turn around your life. It turned around Jonah's life. It, God gave him a do-over. God gave him a mulligan. And it says, and a second time, a second time the word of the Lord came to him. It's one thing to bail someone out. It's one thing to enable someone around you. It's one thing just to forgive someone. But let me tell you this, it is a totally different deal to give someone a second chance at what they failed at. It's a totally different thing whether it's in a career, whether it's in sports, whether it's in relationships. It's a totally different thing to say, I know you blew it but I'm going to give you a second chance. I will never forget, and many of you will never forget, the first time I ever preached here. <laughs> In 1995, we came and we planted Fellowship the Rockies, and our uh, founding pastor was Dr. Kurt Dodd, and he written books, TV ministry, radio ministry. I mean, he was an eloquent speaker and articulate, and it could just, I mean, it just flowed. I mean, I mean and so I, I had, had ran from God, never wanted to be a pastor. Uh, and so God called me. I surrendered to that whole deal. And before we came, in 1994, we were sitting in the, Kurt Dodd and his family and our family were sitting in the Astrodome in Houston, Texas, watching the Houston Oilers play the Kansas City Chiefs. And all of a sudden, Kurt looked over at me and says, Hey, he says, I'm going to be out in June. You're going to have to preach for me. And that, was, that wasn't in my plans. I mean, I just surrendered to God. said, I'll go plant a church. I'll do whatever, but I, I'm not going to preach. And he, says, you, and he looked at the shock on my face. He says, you, you, you have to. And I started getting nervous then. And in June of 1995, I preached my first sermon. I was so nervous. I mean, Paul Radden was our worship leader at the time. We got down to the, to, to the last song. I knew it was the last song because I, I got a play-by-play -play deal and know when to get up and sit down and all this other stuff. And I knew it was my time, but I was so nervous. I didn't know if my legs would support me. So I told Kurt, I told Paul, go ahead and sing another song. And he sang another song, and I finally got up. And Have you ever heard someone speak, and they're so nervous they make you nervous? <laughs> I, mean, I mean, you're like, you can't hear a word they're saying because you're so nervous. You're going, oh, God, just get them through it type deal. It's like, oh, my gosh, I can't believe this. And so the whole room is just nervous and petrified. Listen, it was bad. So after my sermon, I was in the foyer, didn't really want to greet anybody, didn't want to hear anything. And so we had this medical doctor at the time in our church, and he was one of these guys, just the facts type guy, you know. Uh, he doesn't sugarcoat anything. I don't think he's ever sugarcoated anything in his life. And so he came up to me and says, hey, can I talk to you, sir? He goes, listen, let me tell you something. I just, I just want to tell you about your sermon. You were so, so nervous. You made all of us nervous. And he says, you had some really great things to say. I mean, you had some, some really great insight into Scripture. But we couldn't hear you because you were so nervous. You just made us nervous. And I, I, I know, I know. 
And he says, tell you what, come by the office Monday morning, 9 o'clock, I'll slip you in. He says, come in the back, and I'll, make you, I'll give you a prescription. And I'm just going to give you a little pill to take before you preach. I'm like, now he's dead serious. I'm like, excuse me? He goes, yeah, we got to help you through the nerves. I says, hey, I've already talked to Kurt about this. Kurt says, just by you doing it, it becomes second nature. You get out of your nerves. He said, Charlie, this was bad. We don't have that long to wait for you. Nine o'clock in my office. I said, well, what are we talking about? He says, well, we're talking about a little pill I'm going to give you, and you're going to take it two hours before you preach. It'll level you out because nerves is just adrenaline. It's just emotion. And so what we need, we need to get rid of these spikes in your life. And so you'll just take this pill two hours before. Guess what, Charlie? The whole city of Pueblo could show up, and you're going to be loosey-goosey. You're going to be happy. It's going to be good. So I says, are we talking Valium? He goes, yeah, we're talking Valium, but you only take it once a week. I mean, what's the big deal? And I'm going to go, you know what? If word gets out, I'm doing drugs to preach. <laughs> I think that'd be an issue. So he says, so what are you saying? I said, I'm not going to take it. He goes, I want you to know you're selfish. Either you're going to have to take it or we're going to all have to take it to get through your sermons. You choose. You know, I felt like a failure, and I never forget what it felt like to get another chance. Listen, we've all failed at something, right? The only way that we're a failure is when we fail to get back up, is when we just fail to try again. I mean, you look at this, it, 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 and God gave, came to him and said, a second time. See, God's in the character development. God is shaping and molding us. God is molding us into the people that he has called us to be, and he's developing, and at the same time, he's patient. And listen, I am so grateful that God never gave up on me, even in my disobedience. And there's so many people that I know you, and I know some of your stories that you could say the same thing, that I am so glad that God gave me a second chance and a third chance and a fourth chance. And that God didn't give up on me and my disobedience. And here's the interesting thing. Jonah, God comes to Jonah and God did not change the assignment. Verse 2. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message that I give you. God is not going to Jonah and saying, you know what, Jonah, I really made a mistake by picking you. I, was, I knew it would I knew it'd be a stretch for you. I knew it would be a little bit difficult for you. But I was still, I thought you could do this, and you failed. I, I should have picked Jeremiah. Jeremiah was an awesome prophet. He said whatever I ask him to do, no matter how difficult, no matter the consequences to his life, how about Joel? I should have asked Joel to do this. I should have never asked you to do this. No. He said, Jonah, you're still my man. Jonah, you're still my guy. I still need you to go. Verse 3. And Jonah obeyed. Jonah obeyed the word of God. Let me tell you something. Don't miss that. There's something about crisis in your life. There's something about running from God in your life. That teaches you a need to be just obedient to God's word. Don't compromise his word in the area of relationships. No matter if you think you know better than God or not. 
No matter if you think marriage is outdated and for a bunch of other people, it's not for you and it's no longer relevant to your life and what God has called you to do. No matter if you think integrity, that's just not the way people do it anymore and being men and women of integrity. There's something about crisis in life. Listen, there's something about crisis in my life when I ran from God that I learned at a deep level the cost of not obeying his word. Every part of it, every letter of it, the storms in your life will teach you the need just to be obedient to him. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very important city of visit that required three days. Nineveh was like this wealthy city. It was a huge city. It was wealthy, but it was godless. Sexual promiscuity everywhere. Total disregard God. Total disregard for the things that they had multiple gods. Can you imagine how Jonah was when Jonah came into the city and arrived in the city? And on the back of like everybody's chariots, there's these coexist bumper stickers and just pick a God, pick more than one God. It doesn't really matter. You don't have to be obedient to Yahweh. You don't have to choose God. Just any God will do. Can you imagine what was going through his mind with this message that, that God had given him? And Jonah is probably thinking like many of us, boy, if, if I'm obedient to your word, they're going to hate me. They're going to reject me. I'm going to be unhappy. I'm going to be sad. It's going to be miserable. It's better my way than your way. This will be horrible stuff, God. Verse 4. On the first day, Jonah started into the city. and He proclaimed 48, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. This is just a short message. It's eight words in the English and five words in the Hebrew. But these are powerful words because they're God's words. What makes a message life-changing? Listen, what makes a message life-changing is not my words. It's God's word. That's why we use so much scripture here. That's why we walk through books, and that's why we quote a lot of scripture, because the Bible says, I'm just the messenger. The messenger is not what makes his word powerful and life-changing. It's the message. It's his word. Jeremiah chapter 22, it says this. Let the prophet who has a dream tell his dreams, but let the one who has my word, what? Speak my word faithfully. For what has straw to do with grain, declares the Lord. It is, is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks a rock into pieces. You've got to understand God's word is life-changing. That's why we encourage you to life journal. That's why we encourage you to read scripture every day. There's something about Scripture. There's something about when I read Scripture. And it cuts sometimes pretty deep. Watch this, Hebrews 4.12. For, for the Word of the Lord is living and active. Have, have, you, ever noticed, have you ever noticed that God's Word is living and active? That, that you can read a Scripture and it really didn't do anything for you, really didn't speak to you, or it, it, but it, and you just read through Scripture, and then six months later, a year later, you read that same Scripture... And boy, that time it was living and active and it, it just convicted her. God's word is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges what? It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. See, I don't have to do That's not my job. God's word is what judges the hearts and the attitudes. 
God's word. I'm just the messenger. What makes a message life-changing is not so much the messenger, but the message. There's something about crisis, storms of life, that teach us the importance of just being obedient to, to His Word. This was a, a difficult message for Jonah to give. I'm talking about one of those loving, difficult, truthful conversations. You ever had to have one of those? You ever had to sit someone down and look them in the eyes? I said, man, I love you. And I'm not going to remove my relationship, my friendship from you. But I just want you to know, you continue on this path, you're headed for destruction. You ever had to look a family member in the, in the eyes and say, listen, I love you, I care for you, but I'm going to have to draw boundaries in my life. I can't keep going through these storms and these crises with you. And you stay on this path. It's not going to end well for you. See, the problem with running from God is when people run from God, it causes consequences to innocent people around them. The sailors in the boat, remember? They weren't running from God. They had done nothing. They're just doing their job. But because Jonah was in their circle, because Jonah was on the boat that they were on, they had to deal with his consequences. You ever had those difficult conversations to where you had to forgive someone? Has every, have you ever given someone a second chance? Has someone ever given you a second chance? I never will forget. At the end of my running from God and didn't want to preach, and I was in engineering, I had a Christian that worked for, for me. He was a great friend, Terry Hayes. And uh, he had one of those conversations with me. The most loving thing that a friend or family member can do for someone is just have a loving, truthful conversation with someone without any guilt or without any judgment. And he walked in my office about 7 o'clock one night. I was a workaholic at the time trying to find peace and, and satisfaction in a career. Not that the career was wrong. It just wasn't what God had called me to do. I was running. He called me to, he called me to follow him and to preach. And he called me to, to all this other stuff. And I wondered why in that 10-year period I never could find peace. I, no, no promotion could give it. No raise could give it. No accolade could give it. And about 7 o'clock, Terry Hayes came into my office, and, and I said, hey, I said, he closed the door, and that was weird because we were about the only people in there at that time. And he came in. I said, hey, sit down. He says, no, I won't be here long. He said, Charlie, you know I love you, and you know I care for you deeply. I got a couple of questions for you. What are you running from? When was the last time? When was the last time you opened the Bible and had a quiet time and read it for yourself, allowed God to speak to you? 
said, I don't want you to answer any of these out loud. I'm, I'm about ready to leave. He said, Charlie, can I tell you something? You continue on this path, you're going to lose your family. You're going to lose everything that you hold dear to you. You're on a path of destruction. And he walked out of my office and closed the door. You ever had one of those? Listen, I am forever grateful for Terry Hayes. That he loved me enough to speak the truth in love. We live in a time where we just kind of enable everybody and we just tell, hey, it's okay, live however you want. Come into relationships however they No worries, no problems. You don't find that in Scripture. Jesus talked, and a lot of people talked about this issue of repentance, this issue of changing the way that you live. Matthew chapter 3, 1 through 3, uh, John the Baptist said this. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the desert of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. I mean, you, you, this was a hard message to talk about. Talk about repentance. Guess what? It wasn't popular of their day, and guess what? It's really not popular of our day. This issue of repentance, this issue of changing your way of life, this issue of, 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 you know what, God just kind of accepts however I live and whatever choices I make. And when we start talking about repentance, people get nervous because they don't want to change the way that they're living or change the choices they're making. Very few people want to hear that. Acts 2.36, 38 says this, Therefore, Simon Peter's preaching, Let all of Israel be assured of this, God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Can you imagine that conversation? Can you imagine you killed God's son? Can you imagine having to give that message to a group of people? But watch this. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. Why? Because of God's word. God's word cuts the heart. It judges attitudes and thoughts and minds. It'll touch you in your God's word will touch you in your innermost soul where no one else can touch you. And said Peter and the apostles. And so they said to Peter and the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? What a great question. What a great question when you're in storms, when you're in Christ, when you're living out of the will of God. Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Can you imagine that type of conversation where they say, you need to change the way you're living. It's not going to end well for you. Repentance, change of mind that leads to a change of action. is to where you move and you change one way, you're, you're going this way, and repentance would be almost an about face. The fact is, that's what it means in the Greek. It simply means a military term. Repentance means it's a military term that means about face. Look at this. Jesus in Revelation 3.19 had a message to a church in Laodicea. says this, Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. Man, let me tell you something. The stakes are high. Eternity hangs in the balance. There's something about crisis. There's something about the storms of life. That you understand being obedient to the will of God. Understanding what repentance means. Understanding how God has called us to live. And let me tell you something. Man, I love you guys deeply. 
And I never would want to be guilty of not telling you the truth in love. The great news is this. That there is a God in heaven that came down to forgive you and to give you a second chance and give you a third chance if you'll just be willing to respond to him and understand about obedience in his word. Look at this. Uh, this is what happened to the Ninevites. Watch this. Verse 5. The Ninevites. Here's the steps to repentance. The Ninevites believed God. Step 1. Declared a fast. Step 2. And all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. Here's the three stages of repentance. First, it's inward. It's a personal decision. But it doesn't stay there. We live in a time where we say, you know what? We, this, this whole spiritual thing, that's just a personal decision. I really don't talk about it to anyone else. No, you don't ever find that in Scripture. It was a personal decision. It was totally inward. They believed God. Not Jonah, not the messenger, not an organization, not a system. They put their trust not in Jonah but in God. And they said, you know what? We believe in God. Our hope is in God. Our future is in God. Our trust is in God. And then it went further. And it was articulated or they made a declaration. They said, you know what? Because of the inward decision we made, we're going to make changes in our life. So it gives it validity. We're going to make changes in our life. This isn't something that we just, some personal decision that we make and we, we just hope things work out. And they declared a fast. I mean, to the point to where they says, we don't care who knows. We don't care we're a God follower. We don't care that everybody else has a bumper sticker, coexist bumper sticker in our land. We don't care that nobody else follows God. We're making a declaration. We're going to fast. We're making, and then it went outward. We're going to put on sackcloth. And we're going to put on sackcloth. Everywhere in Scripture where you see this issue that they wore sackcloth was, was, was the picture of humility and brokenness and being humble and coming to God and coming deeper to Him. It was this position that people would be in and grieving and humility and sorrow and genuine repentance. They were humbling themselves to God, that's, isn't that why an acts? Accept Christ and be baptized. If it's genuine, you don't care who knows. If it's genuine, you don't care what people say. Because you understand about this obedience to God. You understand about the importance of just, just being obedient to what God has called you to do. Verse 8, when the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and put down in the dust. Revival happened. And you know why revival happened? Because the lives of men and women changed. They looked into a church. They looked into a people group, and they said, wow, those people really believe what, what they say. Their life has been radically changed. They're living. It's not just inward. It's just not something they talk about. But, man, it's inward. They articulated. They made a declaration. And then it's outward. They're willing to put on sackcloth. You want to change a government? You change the hearts and the minds of men and women. It is a revival that broke out. Watch this. Then he issued a proclamation in Nineveh. Talk about the king. By the decree of the king and nobles, 
Do not let any man or beast, herd, flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Now watch this, repentance. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. That's repentance. Repentance is not just in the mind. It's a change of mind that leads to a change of action. It's to where you're headed one way and you walk away from your old ways and you walk in a new way of life. You change behavior in your life. You see this in, in, in this scripture. Who knows? God may yet relent with compassion, turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. Listen, a lot of people will say, God, you stop the storm. You stop the crisis in my life. Then I'll change my life. I mean, you stop the storms, you stop the issues in my life, then I'll change my life. God says, oh no, it does not work that way. You change and I'll lift you up. If you want me in your life, there's a God who loves you and cares about you and he responds to humility and he responds to brokenness. There's... There's only one group of people that, that Scripture says that God opposes. It's the proud. Because the proud will never respond to God. They may hear his message. They may listen to his word. But the proud will never respond to the message. And God says, I oppose them. But it says, but he gives grace to the humble, James 4, 6. God opposes the proud but gives his grace to the humble. Listen, there's real freedom in humility. And I'm telling you, there's real, free, there's real freedom in brokenness. When you get to the sackcloth stage of your life, I'm talking dust and ashes. Whenever you come to the point and you say, God, I just can't keep doing this anymore. I can't keep living like this. I can't keep dealing with the drama. I can't keep dealing with the storms. I can't keep just going in circles. It's then that God says, you're right where I want you. I'll, I'll lift you up. See, we just got to understand this this morning. There's a difference between misery and brokenness. And some people merge the two, if you will. And misery is this. Misery is where people, they hate the circumstances. They hate the situation. They hate the storms of life. They hate the drama. They hate not making any progress. They hate the stuff. But they don't hate their sin. They're not going to... I mean, even though outwardly they seem broken, they're really only miserable because on the inside they're not going to change. On the inside they're unwilling to change. And you and I, we can be miserable and we can have a desire to change, but we're so self absorbed and selfish and prideful that we'll never humble, humble ourselves and surrender to Him. True brokenness and repentance always leads to an outward change. Here's what happened in Nineveh, verse 10. They didn't hurt Jonah. They didn't make fun of Jonah. They didn't reject Jonah. Man, look at this. 
when God saw what they did, that's important. So many people say, God, you stop this stuff, I'll change. God says, no. You go first. You go first. When God saw what they did and how they turned repentance from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction that he had threatened. As they changed their life, he moved. Maybe this morning, it's time for you to do something. Can I just lovingly ask you, are you running from God? Is there something, is there something that you know God has asked you to do and you're just unwilling to do it? Is there an area of your life that you're just unwilling to be obedient to God? And so, you know, it's really none of his business. Running from God is never fun. Running from God is never productive. Running from Him is exhausting and empty. Besides, He has a desire for you to turn to Him. Watch this about His kindness. Romans 2.4 Or do you show contempt for the riches of His kindness, tolerance, and His patience? not realizing that God's kindness leads you towards repentance. Can I just tell you, do not mistake God's patience with you and his kindness for approval of your lifestyle. There are so many people that live outside of the will of God. And your life might be going somewhat okay. Don't ever mistake God's patience and kindness. You show contempt by that, by thinking he's giving you approval of your life because things seem to be going okay. People say, well, if God didn't like what I'm doing, then stop me. Make something happen. The reason he has patience, the reason he has kindness he wants to bring you back to himself. He, he didn't owe Jonah a second chance. He didn't owe the Ninevites anything. But out of his love and out of his mercy and out of his kindness, he gave him a warning. There's a story in the Bible of another runner. He's named the prodigal. He ran from God. In fact, as he ran from his father, he was in his father's house. His father was loving and, and graceful. And the prodigal got to the point that he wanted out of his father's house. And basically, he left and he ran. And when he got to the sackcloth and ashes stage of his life, you know what, he, you know what drew him back to his dad? And in the story, the dad is the picture of our heavenly father. He remembered the love and the kindness of a dad. He rem remembered the patience and the love that he had for his slaves and his servants. That's what brought him back, the love and the patience of a dad. And he turned and he went to his dad. And he turned the corner and looked at the house and the welcome mat was out and the porch light was on. 
And his dad is the one that greeted him in the driveway and embraced him and forgave him and brought him in. There is a heavenly father in heaven that desperately wants you to turn to him. What do you know in your life that he's asking you to do? And you're just unwilling. Is there anything in your life? How long will you run? How long will you deal with the drama and the circumstances and all the other stuff? Never mistake his patience and his kindness for his approval.